I say this often, but I'm going to say it again. Um, I hope as folks are sharing prayer requests, uh, as they're sharing praise, uh, that all of us would, would joyfully accept the calling to continue through the week and praying for those things. Uh, that we don't just listen once and then forget. Um, and many of you already know you can, you can get the email with the gathering of prayer requests and praises. Um, but we are the body of Christ, and this is part of the work of the body is that we pray for one another, that we do intercession and battle for one another. And so we have an incredible opportunity to do that in real life terms, that we don't just believe in the doctrine, we do it. So I would encourage you to take, take up that calling. And, and I would also say this, uh, I think sometimes we can feel overwhelmed at how many things there are to pray for. And if you would pick one or two or three that you're going to be faithful in praying for them, uh, and then God can put it on someone else's shoulders to pray for someone else, but that our calling is to be faithful in prayer, even if we don't cover everything all the time, that we take this calling very seriously. We are continuing, if you will turn to John chapter 17, we are continuing our study of Jesus' final prayer uh, on the night in which he was betrayed and before he would be arrested the next day and go to his crucifixion. And this is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer. Uh, we just read the passage, or Jim read for us the passage from John 10, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and who does good for the sheep and protects the sheep and seeks the welfare of the sheep, even at the expense of his own life. And in, in another way, along with the high priestly prayer, at a very tender and personal level, I hope we also look at this as Jesus' shepherd prayer. This is the shepherd praying for me as his, as his sheep, as his lamb. This is Jesus interceding personally for me. And we're going to focus on one particular uh, portion of this prayer today. Starting at verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. And some of your translations may simply say, and keep them from the evil. But either way, the one is implied in the Greek, but it's a specific. The article means Jesus is talking about evil personified. He's talking about evil as a system. He's talking about evil as an enemy of the people of God. And here's Jesus, the good shepherd, interceding for his, his flock and saying, Father, I'm getting ready to die. And here's part of what I desire would get accomplished through my death is that we protect my flock from the evil one. But I want us to notice one thing here. As he's saying, protect them from the evil one, that the first part of the sentence really matters too. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. 
And the recognition here, and, and it's worth us absorbing this truth and envisioning this truth as a practical part of our, our journey through life. Jesus isn't praying that God would pull us out of the battle. He's not praying that. Jesus isn't praying that God would just keep us from being attacked. We are in the world, and Jesus is specifically saying, I am not praying that we remove them from the battle, but I'm praying that right in the middle of the battle, you and I, Father, would provide for them the resources that means they are not defeated by the hatred, by the purposes, or by the authority of the evil one. And that recognition that the evil in this universe really does hate us. As soon as we become and choose alliance with Jesus Christ, we are the enemy to the enemy. You personally, having put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are the enemy to the enemy. And yet part of the beauty of this prayer is Jesus is, is putting something in place by his death, by his resurrection, that he's saying, Father, here's what I'm praying will get accomplished. That now the authority and the purposes of evil will not reign over my children. The purposes and authority of evil will not reign over my children. And so that recognition, still in the battle, we are in battle, but not defeated. And we're going to look at some of the details of that. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, where we have a, a beautiful description of part, one of, the, one of the many things that got accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But starting in verse 18, Paul praying for the Ephesians says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we have here a, an incredible, a majestic description of the true authority of Jesus Christ that was, that was bestowed on him by the Father because he was faithful to the point of death and defeated the enemy and, and endured all the wrath of God. And we've talked about that numerous times. Satan didn't kill Jesus. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. My sin killed Jesus. Your sin killed Jesus. And the Father's wrath is what was being accomplished at the cross. So, did the Jews and the Romans carry out the execution? Yes, they did. And if that's all it was, we would still have no hope. 
But Isaiah 53 and other passages make it real clear that what got invisibly accomplished at the cross, it's not even visible. You can't put this in a movie. That what really got accomplished at the cross is that God's full judgment for all of your sin and my sin was measured out to the last drop of horrible judgment and that entire wrath was then poured out on innocent Jesus. And, and we've said that a thousand times, and, and among us, we will repeat it again another thousand times that we never forget this. Jesus paid for my sin by enduring the wrath of God that I deserved. And now the Father can forgive me, in a sense, legally. He's not sweeping my sin under the rug. He's not pretending it didn't happen. He's not just a nice senile old guy who's going to be just in a good mood. He's saying, this mattered in my holiness. Someone had to die. The wages of sin is death. And my son stepped in to take the death. Now I can forgive you. And so this this beautiful passage in Ephesians 1 is the father is saying, you know what? I'm so delighted in the faithfulness, Jesus, that you did in sacrificing your life and enduring this wrath that here's my bestowal of honor. I'm raising you above every power, every authority, every dominion, every king, every ruler, every empire, and every name that's ever been named. You're above all of them, Jesus. And I think one of the things we, we frequently face, and plenty of Christians struggle with this, you know, and as the prayer request for praying for our nation, and we, and we look at the world, the world is so horribly messed up. And so when we read a passage like that, Jesus now reigns, and then we look at the world, and we go, well, Jesus, it doesn't look like you're doing a very good job. If I was reigning, I would clean up this mess. And so part of our wisdom has to be that we're gaining from the whole word of God, the recognition that Jesus reigns in triumph right now. While we go through this tiny little brief window, and it is brief, in in the course of eternity, this tiny little brief window of a few thousand years that is called the day of salvation. This is the opportunity for men and women and children to be pulled toward evil, to hear the voice of God, and to choose which direction, which eternity, which dominion and kingdom they will be allied with. But in no way does the condition of the world threaten the authority of Jesus Christ. But part of what Jesus is praying in this prayer and other passages we'll look at is he's saying, but right now, the, the application of my reign is just for my children, just for my flock. And I'll deal with the whole world later. We'll get to the whole universe being transformed in a new heavens and a new earth. We will get to the day when evil is removed from the universe. And if you and I have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we will be there. We will be there to see that day. But for now, he's saying, here's what I've prepared for you. Not that I pull you out of the battle, or not that today is the day the battle ends. But for you, here's what I'm praying. That the purposes and the authority of evil do not have to reign over you. You'll still face them in battle, and you need not be defeated. 
And Jesus reiterates that in, as he rises at the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says this incredible thing as he's leaving his disciples to remain for the battle. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so, because I have all authority, go make disciples. Because my authority is going to be available to you in that disciple-making pursuit. And teach people the truth. And baptize disciples. And, and encourage and strengthen one another to keep maturing in this calling. Because all of my authority will be available to you for the fulfillment of this calling. Now, one of the things I also want to just touch on real quick. Oh, let me toss that one up there. That was Matthew 28, 18. And Ephesians 1, 17 to what, 23? But in James 1, go to James 1 for just a second. And I've, I've worked with and, and heard a number of believers through the years struggle with this. But verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And in this context, he's not just talking about the lust of sexual sin. He's talking about any appetite any urge, any desire that I put in authority in place of Jesus. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So the Jesus who prayed for our deliverance from the authority and purposes of evil, he never tempts us. Father, Son, and Spirit are never tempting us. And I've heard believers justify their sin by saying that God had tempted them. Here is a, an absolute declarative sentence. God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. I know I've shared this before because it was a, a tragic series of events. That a church leader uh, in a prominent place of leadership in his church. A man who had led Bible studies literally for decades. Who was tempted to have an adulterous affair. And he, he had what seemed to him like a wise prayer. Now listen to this prayer because I bet you'll understand why it was a foolish prayer. Dear God, if you don't want me to have this adulterous affair, take away my desire. Well, guess what? The desire was not taken away. So his justification to me was, God could have taken away my desire, and since I prayed and he didn't take it away, it must be God's will. That somehow for this one man, God rewrote scripture to make adultery okay because of an appetite, because of an urge, because of a want, because of a wish, because of a will, that he could erase the authority of God and claim that God had set him up for this sin. And so when Jesus is the very one praying that we would not be under the authority of the evil one, and that we're not subject to the purposes of the evil one, 
We get to be real clear in our thinking. Jesus, you will always be on my side for this. You will always be on the side of victory. So go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, which I know many of you are very familiar with. And we hit this passage a lot because it covers, it applies in so many situations. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and actually let's start at 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So he's just giving us a caution. Even if you're in a strong place, pay attention to what's going on in your life. Even if you're in a strong place, make sure you're getting continuing nourishment for that strength. Even if you believe you're in a strong place, don't become prideful or arrogant or sloppy or careless about your spiritual nourishment and your spirit, spiritual supports. But then he says in 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So that part of what God is saying is not only is he not tempting, He's saying, I've provided a way, and now I'm calling you, choose the escape. I've provided a way of escape. Choose the way of escape. And, and frequently, that means I'm going to have to do some digging and praying and pondering to find that way of escape. But I want to go to 1 Peter chapter 5, so that we continue to look at, at the battle that's ahead of us. In 1 Peter 5, 8, again, passage that very familiar with, hit it frequently. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So here in 1 Peter, we, we see this, this mindset, this command, but a mindset that he's asking us to develop. So Jesus just prayed in John 17 that we would not be subject to the authority, to the power and the purposes of the evil one. That's been provided for, and now you and I have to pick it up and use it. So it's not magic, it is supernatural, but you and I have to choose the resistance. That we're saying, I'm recognizing that there's a way of escape here, but I want to already be developing this mindset that I stay alert. I'm sober and alert. I recognize the enemy will come against me today. I recognize the enemy will come against me today. So I, I say this only half facetiously, but it's a real serious point. There will not be one day in your life or my life where Satan gets up that morning, feels a little lazy and says, you know what? I'm just going to leave Cheryl alone today. You know, she's a pretty tough Christian. I'm just going to give her a break. We'll get going again on Tuesday. But next 24 hours, give her a break. The battle never ends. Jesus didn't pray that we would be taken out of the battle. 
And so that recognition, the enemy will come against us. I can predict it. Now I get to stay alert so I recognize when it's happening. Now, most of the times and ways the enemy comes against me, if I've been paying attention, I'm aware of most of those ways. You're aware of most of the ways the enemy's likely to come against you. Habit, history, family, circumstances that you repeatedly face, most of your battles and my battles, we can start getting ready ahead of time and say, Father, I know Satan's going to come against me in this area. Let's start getting ready now for the way of escape. Let's start getting ready now that I believe in your authority over the enemy. That you are seated above every power, including his power. Let's get that mindset in place so that I'm ready to resist him when he, when he attacks. And, and there are several passages we could go to where we get that same picture of resist. Where, where James says, resist the devil, and, and many of you know this in, in James 4. Resist the devil and he will flee, comma, draw near to God. So you and I have no power to resist the enemy while we're avoiding God. And I've, I've heard believers actually tell me, you know what? I really don't want to draw close to God, but, but I want to know how to defeat Satan. He's already won. Satan's already won if that's your mindset. Because you're in his camp wondering how to defeat him. The recognition, if I'm going to defeat the enemy, I have to have this absolutely wise and passionate pursuit. Father, I want to draw closer and closer and closer to you. I want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the true lordship of Jesus Christ. I want to depend more and more on the indwelling power, presence, comfort of your Holy Spirit. Then I will be standing in the right place to turn around and resist the enemy, defeat the enemy, and cause him to flee. And again, the recognition every time the enemy flees, in a little while he turns around and comes back. The battle continues. But I get this resistance, this command to resistance, and out of Ephesians 6, where I'm also commanded to resist and to stand firm, out of Ephesians 6, which we even, we talked about and studied just a few weeks ago, so won't go into it right now in depth, but to put on the whole armor of God. So I would almost want to ask, no, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would say, if you have not read Ephesians 6 and pondered through the armor of God in, in the past couple of months, it's time. Go do it again. Go read it again. Go meditate and ponder on it as, as choice. Father, I want to comprehend that everything I'm reading in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 is about Jesus Christ having accomplished for me the resources for my victory. I just want to make sure I'm choosing them. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, not as a formula, I say, dear God, I'm putting on the shield of faith. I'm taking up the sword. It's not a formula. It's a package of truths that I'm comprehending and agreeing with him and then going into the day to do those truths as my battle. And as Jesus is praying for us to be defeated, to be, to be protected from the defeat, the power, the authority, and purposes of the evil one, there's one passage that I want to go to real quickly because it matters so much. And that's in Ephesians 4. 
And it's a tiny little phrase that I know is often missed. So in Ephesians 4, he starts in verse 20, talking about the fact that we now have this new relationship where we take on the living Jesus Christ. We are now in Christ. Christ is in us. And so that, that passage, starting in verse 20, goes on. And here's what he says just a few verses later. 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now, to sort of unpack that a little bit, just to talk about what, in practical terms what he's saying is, is if today someone sins against you, and actually, if, if you're hanging around with people, odds are good. So if someone sins against you today, one of your responses to that might be anger. You're offended. It was wrong to be treated that way. It felt disrespectful. It was hurtful. And part of what God's saying is, your anger is not a problem for me. Go ahead. Be angry. But do not sin. So again, right in the middle of that command is an application of Jesus' prayer that we would not be subject to the purposes and authority of evil, even in a situation where I'm angry at being sinned against. That I'm free to be angry, but I know I'm going to have to do something with this anger because he actually says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I'm not picking any names. I, nobody has told me, secretly told me where you, each of you are at. But here's what I know with this many people in the room. There's somebody sitting in this room who's still angry about something that happened yesterday. There's somebody sitting in this room that is still angry about something that happened 47 years ago. There's somebody in the room that is still angry about something that happened in your childhood. And, and here's what God is saying. He really is saying this. Your anger at that is not the problem. But you kept your anger. That's the problem. And as soon as we keep our anger, now it becomes leverage for Satan himself to do damage. So when Jesus is praying for my freedom from the authority and purposes of the evil one, here he's provided for you and I, because go down to verse 32 of this chapter. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So part of the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we not be subject to the destruction and power and authority of the enemy, to his evil purposes, is God says, I've taken care of that. When they put faith in you, my son, I will grant them the same power of authority to distribute forgiveness that I'm now exercising through your death. And he says it real specifically, forgiving each other in Christ as the Father has forgiven you. So human forgiveness has no power to defeat the enemy. Human forgiveness, where I'm just cutting somebody some slack, I'm trying to be understanding, I'm giving them a break, enough time has gone by that it doesn't hurt as much. All of those human substitutes for forgiveness have no supernatural power to protect me from the damage of the enemy. So the passage that Jim read, that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And part of what God's saying is, when you keep your anger in unforgiveness, you are giving Satan legal territory for destruction. 
And, and we hit this truth so many times from so many different angles because it matters that you and I would have a mindset that, Father, part of me agreeing with the prayer of Jesus that I not be subject to the power and the authority and the purposes of the evil one is that I set my heart to quick and supernatural and deep forgiveness. And Father, if I'm looking through my life and I still have resentment against someone from yesterday or from a year ago or 47 years ago, I have resentment that you and I, Father, we're going to start dealing with it right now. Now, I will say this. If you've been holding resentments for 47 years or 23 years or even one year, that might not be a quick one-day process. There might be a lot of digging that needs to be done between you and God or between me and God when we hold on to bitterness across years. We read in, in Hebrews this morning in chapter 12 where he talks about the fact that if we don't extend the grace of God to others... We, we are nourishing a root of bitterness that ends up causing destruction. And God is not minimizing. I would, in fact, I would say this. If you're still angry about something from one year ago or from years ago or decades ago, it probably wasn't a little thing. You're not just offended after 47 years that you didn't get invited to the Christmas party. If you are offended after 47 years, please come and talk to me <laughs> for six months. But, yeah. So that recognition that most of the time when we keep anger and bitterness, it's over big things, deep things, damaging things, hurtful things, destructive things that robbed us of a great deal of joy or relationship or delight or accomplishment. And God is still saying, I promise you that in my son's death, where I poured out wrath on him for the fullness of the sin you need to forgive, that sin will not outclass my son's sacrifice. You get to bring it to me and we'll work it through. So we get to recognize, I play a role in Jesus' prayer, I get to play a role in accepting the power of Jesus' answer from the Father. That I accept the power of forgiveness. I accept my authority to resist the enemy. I accept and agree with God that every time I'm tempted, there will be a way of escape. And that you and I are building this, this strong, just aggressive mindset that means I absolutely look for the way of escape. That I don't say, well, you know, this is a tough one, God. This temptation's gone on for, man, at least 17 seconds. I've got to give in. Or 17 hours, or 17 days, or 17 years. He will say, as long as the tempter shows up with fresh temptation, I have provided the way of escape. Please run to me. Resist him He'll flee you. Then you run to me, draw near to me, and pick up on purpose the power and the authority that I've given you. The disciples in Luke 10. Go to this passage. This is in Luke 10. And Jesus had sent out, not just the 12, but he'd sent out 70 disciples. And he sent them out to minister and to preach the gospel and to turn people's heart toward Jesus. 
And when they came back here in verse 17, John, I mean, Luke 10, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And then he goes on to, to celebrate and praise the Father for what's being accomplished. And again, clearly, Jesus isn't talking about physical injury. Every one of the disciples except for John was crucified or, or killed or stabbed or in one way or another executed for their faith. Boy, were they injured because of their faith. He's not talking about you can't be physically injured. He's saying in the areas where it counts, your intimacy with me and your eternal treasure and your eternal life and your eternal gain, that's where the enemy cannot defeat you. And that's where his purposes would be to defeat you. If all the enemy does is destroy your life physically, destroy your health physically, destroy your finances physically, if that's all he does and you grow closer to God, he knows he's defeated. And I'm giving you authority to defeat him with joy. And we sang a song, and I thought about this passage the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And just a few minutes ago, we sang a song that sort of made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. And, and Jesus is saying, don't get stuck on the wrong thing. Yes, I've given you authority over demons and serpents. That's not the beauty of it. That's almost like a side issue of your authority. It's your eternal gain that my name is most powerful for. It's your own growth in holiness. Your own growth into the character of Jesus Christ. That is where the power of my name is meant to reign supreme. So the enemy can get away with all kinds of things. And if right in the middle of that battle... You and I grow in the, in the character of Jesus Christ. You and I grow closer to the Father and deeper into Christ, more dependent on the Holy Spirit, we win. Pure and simple, we win. Let's pray together. Father, we agree together. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. And Father, here's the most beautiful, majestic, and sometimes the hardest to choose power of your son's name. Is that we would agree to be transformed into the character of Jesus Christ. That we would agree to face every temptation with a determination to find your graciously provided way of escape. That we would recognize our authority over the enemy, not to make him stop doing battle but that we have authority to defeat him in the battle and Jesus we thank you that you're the good shepherd you're never leading us astray but even when the wolves attack you're the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep 
And we want to accept the full power and benefit of what you've done. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for each one of us. That we would love what you're doing in our lives. That even when it's through sorrow, through testing, through grief, through hard temptation, through relentless onslaught and opposition from the enemy, when it's even other people around us that are discouraging us and, and seem to be cheering for our defeat, that we would keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, laid his life down, dying on the cross, so that we could now join in your victory. Jesus, you have all authority. Help us to take this authority seriously for the battles that really matter. The battles that have eternal value. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for all the ways. Help us to understand this. Thank you for all the ways that you are still answering Jesus' prayer in John 17 on our behalf. And Father, we agree on this in Jesus' name. Amen.